Welcome to Learning from Legends with me, Peter Switzer. And at a time when house prices are roaring around the country, and a lot of people are worried about whether they can ever get into the, into the property market, and some people are worrying whether they should be holding on or selling their properties, I thought it'd be really timely to talk to someone who specializes in understanding property markets right across the country. His name is Simon Presley. He started the company called Propertyology. And if there's anything that you want to know about property, this is the guy who's going to give you the answers to those questions. I'm going to ask him about the best places to buy as an investor. I'm going to ask about the mistakes that we make and all those sorts of things to make you and me a better investor in property. So please welcome Simon Presley from Propertyology. Thanks for joining us on the program, Simon. Thanks, Peter. Nice to talk to you. So before we um, start asking you really important questions, I can hear the dogs are barking. So obviously there's some really good information coming our way. Let's uh, let's get an idea about propertyology. How long has the business been going? Where'd you come up with a great name? <laughs> what does the business do? Oh, uh, look, I've got a um, commercial finance background, Peter. So um, business was established back in oh, 23 years ago, um, but originally providing commercial finance broking and personally always had a very keen interest in property markets um, but made the made the decision to move away from providing broking services and instead of helping people acquire the debt acquire the asset that was done just prior to the commencement of the GFC not that I knew back then that the GFC was on the horizon my friends and family at the time mate said I must be mad um, entering into a uh, a new and exciting venture with all that uncertainty in the world but best thing we've ever done yeah it's just funny History has actually shown me that a lot of great businesses were started around the GFC or during the GFC. And I think if you can cut your teeth during the toughest times, when times get good, it's really a real lot easier to run a business. Oh, whether it's finance or anything, I think you learn more through uh, coming out of adversity than you do when, you know, sometimes when things are exciting or you have a, a good outcome, it can create a false sense of security. And certainly that happens a lot with property investors. They they buy something and uh, they probably fluke it. And that makes them feel like they really understand the asset class, um, but, it, it, but it doesn't. The name propertyology, was it easy to get? Had anyone come up with the idea before? No, no one, no one had come up with it. Um, well, I guess you know it's a play on words, obviously, but there is there is definitely a science to understanding property markets, um, which is where the the name sort of come from. But you know, like like medicine, there's a, there's a science with that as well. But it's by no means an exact science. But it's you know I've often argued that there's nothing more complicated on this planet, perhaps with the exception of the coronavirus, um, than property markets. It's extremely complicated. Well, there's a very good uh, television series called um, The Nick about the Knickerbocker Hospital in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Stars Clive Owen. And, and it actually shows you how imprecise um, medicine was in those days as well, where most people died on the operating table because they didn't have anything like penicillin to actually protect people in those days. It's a very good series, but that's by the way. All right. So... All right, so what does propertyology do then? You used to be a broker. I guess you probably still are, but you, you, your business was broking. But now you're actually um, giving people insights into property. 
but what's the business of propertyology? Yeah, so like um, like a lot of other professional service providers, we operate on a fee-for-service basis, essentially when someone engages our services. And our clients are everyday Aussies. Um, when someone engages their services, um, it's really to do two things or make two recommendations. Uh, firstly, we recommend a particular town or city somewhere in Australia that we recommend they invest in. And we support that recommendation with a very comprehensive research report. And then secondly, our buyer's agents handpick a specific property in that chosen town or city. Um, we recommend It's a formal recommendation we make to that client. There's never a vested interest um, in the property. We don't sell properties. It's never a brand new property. So we can't be accused of getting a, a rebate in the back pocket or anything like that. Um, but we, we handpick an individual property asset in the chosen town or city. And our job then is to uh, you know, get the warts and all description of the property to do the due diligence on the property and to negotiate the lowest possible purchase price for our client. Okay, so you're you're based in Queensland, and, yep. and given what you said, then you you obviously don't wear white shoes like the old white shoes. No. <laughs> but you have you have a network, I presume, of property agents around the country. Uh, to a degree, we do. We, we're absolutely every location that we're actively investing in. Um, we need to have people locally. That it's, it doesn't matter that we're in Brisbane and our client could be in Singapore or Sydney or wherever. Um, we still need to have people who are trusted and who have skill that are in the chosen cities that we're actively buying in um, to, to help with some of the very important quality control mechanisms that are, that are very important to us and to our clients. Mm. It's interesting you threw the, the word um, Singapore in there. Um, I have you had a history of helping foreigners access Australian property and B, since the coronavirus, has the interest in doing that actually escalated? Yeah. Um, so we've got um, lots of expats, not just from Singapore, but, you know, all, all over the world. We... Those people have to be Australian citizens because one thing, uh, one of our many uh, do's and don'ts with investing in property, we will never buy a brand new property. Their yeah. evidence-based studies have taught us that a well-chosen established property will always outperform a well, uh, outperform a brand new property. Um, so if you're a foreigner um, and don't have Australian residency, you can only buy a property in Australia that is brand new. So we would never take that appointment on because we're not going to take a fee from someone to do something that we wouldn't do ourselves. Um, but somebody might have, you know, spent their uh, born in somewhere in Australia, educated in Australia and have moved overseas to pursue some work opportunity, but still want to invest here. We have lots of people that do that. Um, second part of your question, has um, that interest accelerated since the coronavirus? Um, it probably has actually. I hadn't hadn't thought of it, about it before you asking that question, Peter, but it, it probably has. Mm. Um, depending on, I suppose, uh, those expats probably have as much confidence in Australian real estate now as probably what they ever had. But depending which country they're living in, the question is, do they have enough confidence in their own personal income to invest now? If they're living in a country that COVID is really, really bad, um, they might not have the confidence to invest yet. Yeah. Um, what, are, what are the standout mistakes that people make when they decide, okay, I've got enough money in super, I paid off my home, I think it's time to get into an investment property. What are the standout mistakes that people make that you have to try and talk them out of? 
with some of that great question, some of those mistakes, a younger version of Simon Presley, he made them himself. But of course, no one chooses to make a mistake. It's not till sometime later that you realise you could have done better. I think the biggest uh, mistake is property investors buy a property in the same city that they live in. Dumb, but it's what everyone does. Um, they're just not conscious of why it's dumb. Um, we've all heard the saying, don't put all your eggs in the one basket. But unfortunately, that's exactly what most property investors do all the time. So we all have to live somewhere. Um, some of us have a family home. Uh, so we're living in, we, we, we might own the property that we live in, sorry. And then when it comes time to investing, what do we do? We, we buy another property in that same location. You put all your eggs in the one basket. So biggest mistake, the share investor who might have some Commonwealth Bank shares is not going to then double down and buy some more Commonwealth Bank shares without first having some stocks in other, other companies on the stock exchange. So we... We respect that. Um, property to us is a financial instrument. We're not helping someone buy the family home. We're helping them make a very important financial decision. So we see it as a financial instrument. Um, another common mistake is people buy with their eyes. They get consumed by how a property looks or, or the, even the individual town or city. Um, they start emotionally processing how they would feel living in that town or city. And it's actually not important at all because you're not buying it to live in the reality is that there'll be tens or hundreds of thousands of people living in that town or city already but that doesn't have to be you um so there's some big mistakes that people make uh people somehow confuse the word capital in capital city for thinking it has anything at all to do with capital growth it doesn't the evidence supports that um, there are only eight capital cities there are 200 individual regional towns and cities. Some of those are really big, some are medium sized, some are small. Um, many of those have outperformed all of our capital cities, but people would not be aware of that because on the first day of every every month, we get a little table that, that's got the name of eight cities in it and they're the, they're the capital cities. And it says, this is what each, um, each of those locations did each month. But there's never a table that says, this is what the other 200 did. And if people knew what the other 200 did, they would sort of go, geez, so I need to, I need to learn more about this stuff because the, the gold is often in the 200, not in the eight. Yeah, and also even within those eight capital cities, there's a whole lot of ver ver uh, variation between suburbs as well, isn't there? So we get an average price rise, but some could rise by a lot more and some could rise by a lot less. Correct. And uh, most of the capital cities, well, there's a few exceptions, but most of the capital cities, the cost of a well-chosen investment property um, would go would be going against the grain of that thing I said earlier about don't put all your eggs in the one basket. So whilst we might be able to justify that buying a property in suburb X uh, is, a, is a good decision, but if it's going to cost $800,000 or $900,000, even if we can afford that as an investor, I would argue that that's not the best that you could do. I would, I would be breaking that up into two smaller components and buying two more affordable assets in other parts of Australia for the same reason that I might have a parcel of Woolworth shares and a parcel of ANZ shares. Let's talk about Byron Bay. Byron Bay, beautiful Byron. Yeah, well, beautiful Byron, particularly, I guess, if you bought there 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But even recently, I guess, if you bought before the coronavirus, it's had an extraordinary uh, rise in price. And I guess people get sucked into those sorts of areas because 
the, the rise has been really, really big. Do you, do you imagine the rise can keep on going at this rate? Uh, well, at this rate, it's Byron, uh, like a few others at the moment, it's probably running at about a 30% per annum rate. Um, some people might not believe that, but that's that's the truth. Um, it logically doesn't make sense to me that it can continue to run uh, for much longer at that sort of pace. Doesn't mean the market will crash though, but Byron Bay is a great case study for those who are interested in, in investing in property to understand real estate more. Um, and it can, Byron Bay confirmed some of the things that I mentioned earlier about common mistakes. Officially, over the last 20 years, Byron Bay has been Australia's best performed property market bar none. It has totally obliterated every other market in Australia. It's a regional community, not a capital city. It's got a population of 37,000, but so it's by no means some really big location. Um, its annual average population growth has been by no means anywhere near the highest of all the other locations in Australia. So a lot of the myths that people associate with property investing are completely defied by the actual performance of Byron Bay. The reason it's done so well um, is largely economic conditions. You don't need to be a big city of 5 million or 2 million people to actually have a thriving local economy. And Byron's economy for much of that last 20 years has been strong. Um, and it's not just the tourism that, you know, Peter or Simon might go to and enjoy a holiday. Um, a lot of the people who live in Byron Bay work as managers or executives. Um, and they may have an office in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Orange, Bathurst, wherever, um, but have a home in Byron. And when required, they jump on a plane or jump in the car and they go to a board board meeting somewhere else, but they're spending their salary in Byron Bay. Um, throughout the, not just Byron Bay, but places like Ballina and Coffs Harbour, very strong agricultural community um, and really strong for food manufacturing. If you like beer, Peter, apparently stone and wood has been Australia's, um, rated Australia's best beer for the last three consecutive years. That's brewed in the north coast of New South Wales, in and around Byron Bay, as are a lot of other um, organic foods and those sort of things. So that's what's underpinning um, the broader economy out there and it's economic conditions that really drives property prices. One of the best um, property decisions we made um, many, many years ago was to buy in Paddington in Sydney when no one wanted to live in Paddington. Uh, it was, in, in terms of what geography teachers would say, it was urban blight, old terraces that no one wanted to live in. But, you know, my analysis then was, A, we could afford it, and B, it was right beside really good suburbs like Double Bay, um, uh, Bondi, Bondi, Waverley. And so I, I figured there'd be a ripple effect and lots of things happened to explain why Pennington took off the restoration era, all that sort of stuff. And so I've, I've been a great believer that there's a, um, there's a bit of a sensible play to look at the suburb next to the next suburb that has been doing really well. And so about a year or so ago, we were up at um, um, Kingscliff, just, out, just north of Byron Bay, and, I, and I, I thought, I think Pottsville as well, they all had done very, very well. Um, and... Do places like that benefit from this spectacular success of Byron Bay and therefore there is a ripple effect? And is that ripple effect quite consistent? 
there is some merit in the ripple effect. Um, but what's more important than the ripple effect is to understand what are the underlying things that are driving wherever the growth originally started um, and, and how sustainable is that? And, th and those things are really economic conditions. So we need, to, we need to understand all the decisions that are made by the various stakeholders that make up an economy. You know, what decisions have they, ma have they made in recent times? And are those decisions likely to have a positive or negative impact on economic conditions locally? Um, and then also have a keen investigation into the current volumes of housing supply, as well as the things that are in the supply pipeline. Um, if we've done that exercise first, and I must stress that's the most important thing, if we've done that first and then have confidence in the outlook for the next, say, three to five years of that broader market, um, then I would agree there's uh, often some uh, um, you know, strong merit in not buying where everyone else is buying, um, but look for the, the next best and, and benefit from that, that knock-on ripple effect. Hmm. I must admit, in my own experience, I noticed that then Darlinghurst did very well, and then a suburb I thought had no chance ever to be acceptable, Redfern, became once again a popular suburb. So it really has gone right across the inner city area. The interesting thing I found about Kingscliff, uh, we started a place called House in House, which is a fantastic place to stay, but what grabbed me was it was a 20-minute cab ride from Gold Coast Airport to the to the hotel, which was a lot better than the cab ride from um, uh, Gold Coast to Byron Bay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that and that's another misconception that some people have about um, you know uh, regional Australia, um, the amenities. Uh, you know, some of the depending on the size of the regional location, it might have all of the amenities that a big capital city has. But instead of having 10 shop, major shopping centres and five hospitals, it might have, you know, one or two of each of those. Um, but some of our smaller regions, directly in the township itself, it might not have them, but they still might only be 10 or 20 minute drive away from a neighbouring town or city that, that does, does have it, which, as you said, if you live somewhere like a Brisbane, Sydney or Melbourne, you might have to, you might have to drive an hour to get to some of these amenities anyway. Yeah. Um, I wrote something last weekend and the headline ended up being, which I didn't necessarily create, but the headline ended up being, um, will house prices fall? And it went, yep, definitely yep. How do you react to, to that? Uh, house prices do do fall. In fact, I quoted you on Sydney, where you actually showed there had been four property falls um, since 2000. Yeah, um, it doesn't happen very often um, that property values fall, but they definitely do fall. And therefore it is always important that when someone's looking to buy real estate, whether it's their family home or an investment property, that we don't make that really important decision based on what's happening in the here and now. We still need to understand, yeah, what are the things that, um, the influencing factors, because there's nothing more, more disappointing than buying a property today and then 12 months down the track all of a sudden the value of that asset starts to go down um you know taking the time today to understand what might lie ahead sometimes that might mean well hey i perhaps shouldn't buy in this location now even though it is performing well at the moment um or if it's a family home we're talking about um then maybe maybe it's better to just 
sit on the sidelines for a while. If we had concern about, you know, um, the next year or two ahead, sometimes it's better to sit on the sidelines uh, for a while and wait for the heat to die out um, and enter that, um, uh, enter that market, uh, you know, coming out the other side of the downturn. They don't happen very often, but anyone who says property prices never decline is telling a lie. And, and my thinking was because we've seen, particularly in Sydney and other places that you've you've um, um, pinpointed, we've seen some really big rise. I think Sydney's up nearly twenty percent in a year, yep. depending on who, uh, whose uh, numbers you look at. And, and there must be a lot of younger people, even older people, who have been dying to get in the market and they just can't get into it. And so I wanted to make the point that yes, house prices uh, do fall, and they fell. Was it two thousand seventeen to about? mid-2019. Biggest uh, downturn in Sydney's history was uh, July 2017 to the federal election, uh, which is May 2019. The median house price declined by $190,000 in Sydney yeah, in that two-year period. Yeah. And I, think, I think I stole but credited your... your <laughs> Good on you, mate. <laughs> one of the few people who actually do, from my academic background, I actually do credit people when I get their information and use it. But what, what I have noticed... And I do remember, I do remember one, one of the, um, the times when Sydney house prices were going nowhere because I interviewed John Simon at the time and you know, John was very active in Aussie home loans at the time. And uh, it may well have been just after CBA bought into him. So he had a very big smile on his face because he got a lot of money out of that particular purchase. But I remember in front of a big audience, him saying to me that, you know, house prices in Sydney uh, have been going sideways for quite some time. And when I looked at your, your figures, it seemed to me that even though the house prices fell in that period, 2007 to 2019, the, the, the median price went back to where it was before the, the boom that, uh, that brought the Sydney uh, median price to a million. So it wasn't like it fell down to a terrible level, it kind of fell back to a base level and then eventually took off. Is that a pretty common pattern with capital cities? No, things always happen for a reason, whether property prices are going up or down. Um, you know, we hear we always hear that word fundamentals a lot, but um, I don't know that many people, you know, truly appreciate what, what does that mean? So in Sydney's case, that two year period, the downturn was caused by an overzealous construction sector. So during Sydney and also Melbourne's boom, which sort of went 2013 up to the middle of 2017. Why did it boom in the first place? It boomed because its economy, which had previously been very soft, um, its economy started to pick up. As an economy picks up, people who live in that in that community gain confidence. As our confidence grows, some of us buy real estate, you know, whether it's we're upgrading a family home or whether we're, we're buying as an investor. But the, the increased buyer activity creates competition and puts property prices up. Um, the downturn in Sydney and Melbourne, that four to five years of really strong local economic conditions, the local construction sector, which has always been a very, very important industry to Sydney and Melbourne's economy, got overstimulated. So while the boom was occurring, the last couple of years of, of the property boom occurring, at that same time, there was a big flood of extra housing stock hit the market and it created an oversupply which caused the downturn. Um, so it's not to say that every boom ends in a crash. It can end in a crash, but if it does, it'll, it'll either be because the local economy has suffered. Sydney and Melbourne's economy certainly didn't suffer. 
Um, but it's either local economic conditions suffer or there's an oversupply of housing. Uh, a boom can sometimes end and past booms in Sydney um, have ended with four or five years of the property market literally going sideways. I think for memory, Sydney's median house price at the end of 2003 was still exactly the same in 2008. Yeah, no, no movement at all. Now that can happen anywhere at any time, um, based on whatever the local characteristics are of each each um, individual market. Yeah. So when people ask me, you know, what do I think the the Sydney house prices would fall to, and I and I said, well, if the current median is one point two mil, I think that's the that's the number I've seen recently. The the number before that was about a mil. Um, and, and I, I, I put that down as my best guess. That's all it is. But what, what would your best guess be if, if you're asked that hard question? I'm uh, not comfortable in answering it um, because, and that's not to say I don't think Sydney has the potential for house prices to fall. It does. Um, but why I'm not comfortable, comfortable answering it is a couple of key people who could make a decision that will really determine that outcome. And we don't, they haven't shared with us what those decisions are. If APRA intervened as they did a few years back and made it very hard for people to borrow money um, that could create a significant downturn in sydney's market more than any other market because um, the house the cost of housing is so high Um, but sydney's local economic conditions are fragile uh, there's plenty of other parts of australia their local economic conditions are very exciting but Sydney has always will have a strong reliance on uh, economic factors related to global conditions. It is a global city. Um, its economy has always benefited um, a lot from international tourists. It hasn't had that the last 12 months and who knows when it will get that again. Um, its economy has always benefited a lot from international students. It's lost about 200,000 students in the last sort of 12 or 18 months and we don't know when they'll come back. Um, yeah, so that's fragile, and, and it's been—I think it's been shaded at the moment because there's a lot of stimulus in the market, including these record low interest rates. But none of this stimulus, we should never expect, is going to last forever. Um, uh, if and when you know some of this stimulus reaction stops, we then expose what's all already there—the rural economic conditions—and they're not particularly good. Now, the, the other thing, Sydney and Melbourne typically get about seventy thousand people each and every year. Uh, a net figure from overseas migration, which it has not had. Um, and we are stimulating, as part of our economic recovery from COVID, we are stimulating the construction sector again to create more jobs in that sector. So we're adding all this extra supply at a time when all that population that we've in the past relied upon is not there. Um, so there, there are some fragile conditions there that anyone transacting in real estate in Sydney and Melbourne really need to think cautiously about how things might be a couple of years from now. Let's go back to 2015 and 16 when Sydney and Melbourne were both booming. A lot of people then might have thought this is always going to continue, but we've just been talking about the downturn from 2017 to 19. So we always need to understand, not that anyone's got a crystal ball, but we need to look at the decisions of today and how they will influence financial and property market outcomes of tomorrow. Okay. Um, you talked about a construction boom, Sydney and Melbourne, and I presume in that time, a lot of apartment blocks were built. Yes. And we've now seen, particularly in Sydney, 
lots of problems, defects with lots of those apartments. Right. I asked a property lawyer last last week, um, uh, uh, Professor Kathy Sherry, I think it was, um, whether she, what would she recommend um, people if they were thinking about buying a new apartment? And she said, don't. Yeah, totally well, agree. You totally agree. Yeah, not just in Sydney, Melbourne, anywhere. The uh, the quality controls of building new dwellings in this country changed pretty much around the time of the turn of the century. So let's call it 20 years ago. And this, this is not just apartments, um, it's houses as well. Prior to that, a developer was required at, at, um, and builder was required at certain stages of construction to get a local member of the city council out to verify certain things, quality control things. And, that, and they're doing that to protect the consumer to ensure that the end product that you or I whoever buys it um, is buying a product that was built with good quality controls. What, so what they did, they bowed to, every state in Australia did this, they bowed to pressure from the construction sector and unions um, to relinquish those quality controls and put it into the broader private sector. So now at each and every stage when they need to come in and check those quality controls, it's a private business, which is often influenced by bribes and all sorts of corruption to give something the big tick. Combine that with the fact that um, developer margins have progressively been squeezed over the last 20 or so years. So the materials that they use for different things are significantly more inferior to what they would have used in the, in the past. So they're looking for they're looking after their own profit margin as opposed to having pride in the end product that they produce. And so there's a recipe for disaster there. So there's been all sorts of, you're talking in some cases, Peter, especially in apartment blocks, major defects that could cost millions and millions and millions of dollars to repair within one building. And there is no insurance that covers this. It's the individual lot owners who own a property within that one building that they need to solve that problem. Because mm. once upon a time, we, you know, a lot of people like you would, would have said buying you because of the the uh, depreciation advantage, but the obviously over time, the worries around defects are such that you would have, you would give up the the depreciation benefit of being a property investor in a new property. Yeah, a lot of people do say, I never have said that by new, but a lot of people do say that because of the tax deductions. Um, but there are tax deductions on anything. It's just that there are more tax deductions on the, the newer the property, the more depreciation you can claim. But at the end of the day, no one should be making a this really important financial decision with tax deductibility is, is the main thing we're chasing. Um, what we should be doing is picking picking an asset, considering all the sum the sum of all things. Sorry, that um, are going to influence the future value of that property, and that's not the tax deductions. In fact, um, the brand new dwellings, their potential for capital growth will be always be significantly less than the well chosen established property. Do nothing to do with depreciation benefits at all. Um, the purchase price of that brand new property is always loaded with a whole heap of taxes that the developer has to pass on to that first purchaser and a lot of sales and marketing costs. So you end up paying a lot more for the brand new one, which is built poorly in the first place, than you would for the well-chosen established one. Um, so therefore, the potential capital growth will always be much better for the well-chosen established one than the brand new one. Okay, last question. It's gonna be an easy one, um, as you can imagine. Um, 
So one of your beloved family members comes to you and says, Simon, I want your three best areas where I should go looking for a property. You know, I want to make nice capital gain. I want to get good rents out of it. What are the, the top three that come to mind at this point in time? Top three. Uh, these are what I describe as mini capital cities. So they've got all the characteristics of a capital city, but they're on a smaller scale. They've got a diverse economy. They've got a good lifestyle. They retain their youth. They've got all the essential infrastructure. I would say Bendigo and Victoria, Launceston and Tasmania. And I'm deliberately thinking of a different state because I pay a lot of respect to diversification within, a, within an investment portfolio. So let's pick another Queensland uh, location there. Uh, would probably be somewhere like a Sunshine Coast or a Harvey Bay, something like that. Great stuff, mate. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. That's Simon Presley from Propertyology. And that's the show for this week. If you want to know more information about how you can get rich, have a look at the Switzer Report, switzerreport.com.au, or read me every day in Switzer Daily. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. Thank you.